Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Seesaw. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seesaw. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the Third Fridays podcast. Got a little doozy for you guys because it's going to be the first podcast episode ever that I, where I've invited a claimant's attorney to talk to me. And maybe it's because uh, most of them hate me, but um, my guest today, or my guests today, I think would uh, say otherwise. I'd first like to welcome back uh, my partner Noah Pollock to the show. I think you, you had an episode where we like went into detail about the medical treatment guidelines and nerded out for like 30 to 40 yeah, minutes. I remember that fondly. Yeah. yeah. Think well, about it from time to time. Welcome back. And um, our first ever claimant's attorney guest, uh, Sarah Bea. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So we have this, uh, I guess, this case here that came down uh, from the third department last month. And um, it was, you know, I take a very like keen interest in seeing where uh, the appellate division overturns the workers' compensation board. And uh, I know over your firm's social media, you guys have been promoting it, uh, you know, in due course because of um, what had occurred. And I think this would be a good uh, one to really touch on given that, you know, Noah is a big construction expert at our firm. And also, Sarah, since you um, were basically lead counsel uh, for your firm on this one, right? Yes, I didn't do the litigation. I actually I do the appellate work in our office. So it's interesting to pick up the pieces and um, see what happened because once the record set, it's set. <laughs> right. So when you, um, I guess you, if uh, doing the appellate work, right, we have a, uh, a claimant who, you know, I guess was like a safety manager or, or a safety inspector he alleged that he was pulling a gate in a parking area that resulted in an injury to his left bicep muscle and a torn rotator cuff in the left shoulder. He goes and gets shoulder surgery, uh, you know, one week after this uh, this accident, and uh, the claim is is controverted by the carrier. You go through the regular course of events with a trial, and you know, Sarah, you mentioned. Um, I guess just taking it over from the trial attorney, uh, the case is disallowed. What did you think about your office's chances of getting that overturned? I, I thought it was such a strange case to begin with. Um, the the gentleman who we represent, Mr. Espinoza, uh, did work for an outside company. So it was almost a, like a general special issue. It was an issue with direction. Um, the, the judge uh, disallowed the claim, and then the board panel disallowed the claim. Uh, this came on my radar uh, after we lost, um, and, and I was so surprised. I, I actually I did not write the um, the brief to the uh, to the board, but I took it over when it went up to the third department when we filed the notice of appeal, and I wrote the, um, the application for full board review. Um, so what happened was at the trial level, um, Mr. Espinoza testified what I believe is credibly, and the minutes reflect that, that he worked for an outside company, and they, where he was working, there was a construction site across the street um, where they were working on a hotel, and there was a parking garage, and the employees of the construction company were directed to park in that garage, and Mr. Espinoza was also directed to park in that garage 
by the general contractor. Now, it's unusual because Mr. Espinoza is not in construction. He's not a subcontractor. But he was directed and he was uh, by the general contractor. And additionally, um, he was overseeing the movement of materials. And where the parking garage was, there were materials there. He needed to make it sure that everybody worked in a safe manner and if they did not, to report it back to the GC. So um, he, didn't, he didn't know whether to report the claim. I, I believe, based upon my conversations with him and also based upon my review of the record, um, when he reported the claim to his employer, I don't think they knew what to do with it. So he took it upon himself to get treatment. Um, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of comp claims. They're unsophisticated in that regard. And um, even and his HR person testified that she didn't know anything about the site. Um, so it went to trial. It, we, there was testimony of um, three parties, uh, Mr. Espinoza, his supervisor, and the HR uh, representative. And um, the judge disallowed it based upon the fact that it did not arise out of in the course of employment because Mr. Espinoza was not under anybody's control. Um, it's a, it's a novel situation, but I think we see it arise more and more frequently as companies start to use outside vendors. Yeah, I think what was interesting there, like you mentioned the, the two witnesses from the employer that, you know, weren't aware of this, uh, I guess, this off-site location or technically on-site, depending on how you want to look at it, but controlled by the general contractor. Mr. Espinoza isn't working for the general contractor, and... Uh, the appellate division seemed to credit the fact that his testimony was uncontroverted, that he was directed to use that garage, right? But, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, like, I don't think that his own employers would have the opportunity to direct him to use a garage that the general contractor was actually in control of, right? Correct. There was nobody else from the employer there. Um, the, the testimony um, really reflected the fact that there weren't work, work accidents frequently for this employer, if ever. I mean, maybe very minor things. But um, the testimony of the HR representative, uh, Ms. Valente, she stated that she didn't have any information on the job site's procedures. She had never been there. She never worked at the accident location. She didn't have any information about the work performed there. Literally, she knew Mr. Espinoza was assigned to a site and made sure that he went to the site and uh, that he was paid. Um, there was an interesting part that I didn't put in the brief that I thought was, um, it, it was just, it was too complex or it could cause some confusion, but Mr. Espinoza had to sign in and out of work every day. And the sign-in book was in the garage. Um, and he was actually the person responsible for reporting work accidents there because he was a safety person. And so he literally reported his own accident. Right. Um, and he reported it to HR. Uh, so it really was uncontroverted that this accident occurred. It was an unwitness accident. So either way, unwitness, it would have been compensable. It was really about the location and um, whether this arose out of and in the course of employment. Um, our sticking point from day one was the fact that he was directed to park there. The employees of the general contractor were parking there. And his job also crossed over with that particular site in that his sign-in sheet was there, his sign-in book was there, but also the materials were moving across the roadway to the hotel from that location. Right, so... So, there were ties. Yeah, so, I mean, my looking at it, it's interesting looking at uh, the case and gleaning the facts just from the third department, you know, appellate division. Like, we didn't litigate this one. This wasn't with our firm. 
I don't think we would have been discussing it if it was <laughs> uh, for uh, various reasons. But um, so it's interesting piecing, look, looking at um, what the uh, appellate division highlighted as far as the facts when we don't have the actual transcripts of the minutes uh, to review and to see exactly what was elicited on testimony. But my takeaway is a couple of things. Number one, the board, uh, you know, state uh, the third department talks about the uh, the standard for upholding or not upholding board panel decisions where really decisions won't be disturbed if they're supported by substantial evidence. And I think I speak for a lot of attorneys that are in comp that deal with a lot of board panel decisions in the appellate division. Nobody really knows what that standard means or how it would be applied because it does look like in most cases when cases are before the board panel or even like this one before the third department, they're just looking at the facts themselves and deciding things almost de novo. They're not really um, giving any deference whatsoever because looking at the facts, even as as described in the third in the appellate division decision, it does seem to me that the decision of the law judge and the board panel, there is evidence to support it, substantial evidence to support it. So I don't know how much the standard actually came into play or whether they care about it. That's number one. Now, number two, looking at it um, from, you know, uh, from the carrier side and how I would have litigated it, I do think that the default position, I mean, just the law, the case law, and, and, for, car and for carrier attorneys is that, look, the coming and going, if you're going to and from work or the work site, it's, the default is it's not going to be covered. And the claimant has to come up with a way to get around that or, or talk about how, how this is an exception or really, you know, the circumstances are, are a little different. So even though this appeared on its face to be a pretty strong case for the carrier, and that was, you know, brought out by the law judges and the board panel decision disallowing it, I think they really, it's hard to get wins as a carrier attorney. We know that. A lot of things are tilted towards the claimants. It's very difficult to get wins. And when something is set up where you have a very strong case, you have to go, you have to basically come hell or high water, fire and brimstone everything you possibly can to shut the door on the claimant. Now, in this case, it strikes me as strange that the two witnesses that were brought were a director of human resources that is obviously, like you said, not going to know anything about the actual job site, the job of, of the claimant or the details about where things are stored, where you have to go, signing in, sign, anything like that. So there's basically no relevance to what uh, she was going to testify to. And then the other employer witness is the vice president of the employer, who was basically just testifying that he wasn't aware of construction materials being stored across the street, that they were just a consultant, I guess, about site safety, and they didn't handle the building materials and wasn't responsible for the area across the street. So they didn't bring in anybody from the general contractor to testify in support of their position that, you know what, we don't care where this employer parks. He just has to be on site and do X, Y, and Z. Like, we don't really care. There wasn't anything brought out where... Uh, the carrier is saying, hey, we have the general contractor who's going to tell us uh, exactly what's going on here with the parking situation, how this guy gets to the job site, what he has to do, like, can he park anywhere else? So I really think they, look, if they spoke with the general contractor. They tried. And, yeah, they so if they, they spoke tried. with the general contractor and the general contractor, you know, just didn't help him or provided, you know, unfavorable information and they didn't bring him, fine. That's one thing. But you know, certainly that's something that would have had to have been, um, 
uh, brought out. They really needed to get a little more information here because it left the door open for the board, for the third department to just say, hey, the claimant testified this way, he was credible, and so Carrier has nothing to the contrary, and we're just going to credit exactly what the claimant said. It's really funny because if the claimant was injured, say, in the middle of the street, he was hit by a car on his way to open the gate, it probably would not have been compensable. Yeah, it would have been in the public area and he was hit, you know, incidental. He had left the job site. He signed, he left the initial job site and he signed out. So I think it's kind of interesting. I, I feel like if he was hit on the way to that gate before he started opening it to get to his car, probably would not have been deemed compensable. But once he got to the gate and started opening it, all of a sudden it's back to arising out of it in the course of. Well, Sarah, you mentioned something like just while Noah was uh, going over that, you said that they tried to contact the general contractor. Do you do you know that? I guess that I do. <laughs> um, the travelers want travelers is a carrier in this case, and travelers wanted to bring the GC in to testify. Um, his testimony was ultimately precluded um, because he did not appear. And, and I think, as a former carrier attorney, I, I was looking at this as well. What do they do? Because the general contractor is not under their control. Uh, would it have been a good practice point for a carrier to get a letter? From the general contractor stating that would I think a letter would have held weight more so than having nothing, um, and and that I think we may have been dead in the water if there was some kind of correspondence from the general contractor stating that um, that my client was not directed to park anywhere. Yeah, I'm curious um, here, Sarah. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> here because you know I deal with a lot of almost primarily construction cases. And um, the policies that are implicated are, are called wrap-up policies, where the, um, basically the developer or the owner of the project is the one that's getting all the insurance coverage for all of the parties, the contractors working on site, as opposed to most workers' compensation cases where it's done through the actual employer. Now, in this case, and I'll get, get to why this is so important in this case for gathering information, do you know if the liable carrier was, uh, if it was a wrap-up policy that was implicated or if it was just the general policy for the employer? I believe it was the general policy for the That would employer. be my thinking um, also, considering that he wasn't an actual contractor doing any construction work, it was probably the general policy. And that makes it more difficult for them to get information out of the general contractor. Now, I think one of the biggest problems that... Um, we face, the carrier attorneys face in presenting witnesses or evidence is actually getting the witnesses to testify, to be available, to because a lot of them don't have much incentive. Many, many of the witnesses for the actual companies, the construction companies, the contractors don't want to testify against their fellow workers because it's not in their best interest. If they suffer an injury, they want the support of their, their fellow workers. They don't want to testify against fellow workers. Now, sometimes you have general contractors or the supervisors and also, if, if it's covered under the operational policy and they're working, uh, the general contractor here is covered under the, the wrap-up, a totally separate policy. So they're really not under the control of travelers at all. Now, when there's a wrap-up policy involved and they're, you know, they have their employer, but really they're all working for the developer or the owner's project, there we can, we can put the screws to the general contractors or the employees of the contractors because we're working with the developers, we're working with the owners, and the general contractors want that work. They're being used, and so there we have an advantage if it's under a wrap-up where we can, we're more likely to be able to get those witnesses. In this case, it's like, hey, the general contractors have nothing to do with travelers, they really don't care. 
the employee was this a supervisor totally separate so i can see why it would be a little more difficult now it doesn't absolve you know the carrier from you know i don't know exactly what they did what kind of efforts were made but it certainly made it more difficult and I think, like we're talking about here, it would have been extremely helpful if they had the general contractor testify because that could have shut the door here. Um, now, I don't know what, it would, what the general contractor would have testified to. but um, So, yeah, just, so generally, yeah, it is, it, is, it is an issue. And if you have a wrap-up, you have to be able to use the, uh, the influence and the power of the developer and the owner to get all those employees for the subcontractors, the general contractors to testify it would have been really helpful in this case. And, and Sarah, I think um, one, one of the, like what Noah started off talking about, this like substantial evidence standard, right, where the board wouldn't be disturbed if the appellate division believed that there was substantial evidence to support the decision, uh, maybe asking it a different way, if the appellate division affirmed the board, would you be surprised? That, that's a tough one because, as you know, the standard at the board to appeal and to have a case established or disallowed is preponderance of the evidence, it's, which is the substantial evidence when we get to the third department. Um, so at the board level, it's, is it more likely or not? And it's a much higher standard. Um, I don't think I, the amount that things are affirmed at the, in the court system, especially with the third department and the board, is extraordinary. We looked this up. There were last year... There were 121 cases decided at the third department in 2022. Uh, I believe 11 or 14 of them were reversals. That was it. 11, it wasn't many at all. And, um, and the number that were reversals uh, from the law judge and the board panel agreeing and the third department reversing, I don't believe there were any, and I could be wrong. We had researched this. So I wouldn't have been surprised if we lost um, at all. And I think it's the nature of what we do. And I also think that um, workers' compensation in general, if you don't practice it every day, is very confusing. I, I give the third department a lot of credit uh, for doing what they do because these are not easy cases. And it's evident that it's, there's a learning curve each time they have to look at these. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, to I totally agree with that. I think that, um, you know, obviously the appellate division is not in the position to you know, generally disturb board decisions. Uh, I think that, you know, you know, you mentioned when you first started talking about this, like maybe is this a general special case? And now it makes me think, well, it's not like the decision was completely reversed and, and established there, right? It's 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 remanded back to the board for further proceedings. And does that mean now the current carrier can use general special because the person who directed Mr. Espinoza to use this was not them, was not the employer, right? The, I think the third department is now relying on the fact that he was, he had uncontroverted testimony that he was being directed to use this gate or use this parking area. But that's not the control of an operational policy of the current employer. Now Noah's like smirking at me, right? So what what do you guys think here is if you're if you're if you guys, you know, Sarah, you're a former carrier's attorney, Noah, you're currently doing this every day. Uh what do you think that would have a shot uh when you go back for the remand? I think that there's one little caveat here. He's the only employee there from his employer. And he's in a supervisory role. So if he's making the decision to do this, and he is, I, I don't know if even if there was that relationship found, um, whether 
travelers in this case would, would receive any relief because he's there, you know, they trust him to be there, they trust him to, uh, you know, follow what directions are best. And also, the other catch is here, the building materials were where he parked, and he was responsible for watching the building materials. So it's, um, I don't know, you know, and the third department wasn't uh, super clear in the decision as far as I can read. Maybe you'll have a different take on this, especially Noah with the, um, with the direction. It seems to me that uh, because the building materials were there, that was like the final nail in the coffin, right? It's not just that he was directed to park there. It's that he had to be over in that building anyway for work, which is arising out of it in the course of his employment. He has to be there anyway. Yeah, I mean, so it's I an important fact. It. It's one of it's one of the facts that goes into it. But again, I would want to know ex more detail as far as why it's stored there day to day during the actual um, mm -hmm. job during the day. Is he ever there? Like, does it matter? You know, if he looks at the materials when they're over there, or is he just responsible when they come to the job site? You know, the materials and the equipment. So again, I would want I would want more facts. I would have wanted to elicit a little more testimony. Again, the general contractor would have been key. I have a couple other uh, questions. Um, now, after it was disallowed and the board panel affirmed before you got this uh, favorable decision, did the carrier reach out to you at all about settling it and having you withdraw the third uh, department appeal? No, in fact, uh, the, uh, the uh, carrier attorney is my former boss, and I got a call and he said, kiddo, I can't believe you're appealing this. Wow. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got to tell you, look, from a very aggressive carrier attorney, if I secured a disallowance and the board panel uh, affirmed and the full board denied review, and the only thing that was pending was a the appellate division, I would be reluctant to offer anything. But looking at how the facts were, were brought out in this case, including uh, the carriers being unable to get the general contractor to testify, I would have been worried a at least a little bit. Now, I know you said the statistics were basically like, you know, 99% that the third department would just not change anything. But I would have been a little worried. And I'm just curious if there was a settlement offer made, not not a joke settlement offer, but if they had given, if they had actually offered something like $5,000, $10,000, if, you know, you would have actually considered it and withdrew and withdrawn the uh, third department appeal. You know, I don't know, and that's that's a good question. I think that sometimes, you know, we look at this in such a case-by-case -case basis. And like I said, I wouldn't have been surprised if the third department just affirmed the board panel and uh, the judge. But at the same time, I, I looked at this as well. This is silly. I, I mean, there's case law, and obviously we cited substantially more case law in our brief than, than what the third department um, relied upon, because they relied upon Houston, which is practitioners we see all the time. But... Um, I just, you know, I really thought there's a chance at winning this one. And I don't know if we would have said to the client, well, if you take the, and I, I don't have a good answer. We didn't get a, a sincere settlement offer. I don't think we got any to the best of my knowledge. I could be wrong because I didn't handle this until the appellate level. But even if I got an offer for $5,000, I think I presented to my client yeah. and said, well, you're going to have to wait a long time. And, and that's the issue, right? And when I called him after we won, he said, well, I don't even have a case. What are you talking about? <laughs> Man, so they would have been able to get that settlement for nothing. He thinks it's yeah. done. Yeah. But it no, really I, I think, look, I think it's just good yeah. practice for, I think it's good practice. Look, obviously it's more relevant if, you know, there's a pending appeal before the board panel. It's very rare you get a case like this before the, the third department. But um, I think it's just good practice for carrier attorneys to see if there's something there, you know, settling it for nuisance or minimal value when the exposure would be much more significant if it was reversed. <clears throat> 
Now, in this case, sim uh, just along those lines, at the, uh, you know, substantively, was there like a concession in the medical record as far as the, you know, the biceps tear, the rotator cuff tear, that it was all related to this accident? Well, the catch is here, too, and I, this is one of the reasons I'm surprised it wasn't affirmed. My, my client went and got surgery immediately. I mean, it didn't go through, you know, our, our prior uh, system with the MG2s. It didn't go through the equivalent of the PAR system. He went and just had surgery. So he was fixed, uh, you know, by the time anybody could examine him, you know, the problem was solved. Uh. So, and I mean, yes, an IME could, you know, could examine him and comment, well, I think this is related, but if you don't see somebody at their worst and you see them after they're repaired, I don't know how accurate that can be. I'm not a doctor, but I think it put them at a disadvantage. And again, it was surprising based upon those facts that, um, that, that was one of the things that surprised me that, that we were able to win at the third department because obviously the board and the board panel frown upon people getting treatment that's not authorized. Yeah. So I guess my question is more specifically, like, what is the actual posture of the claim right now? Is it established? It's my impression that um, that it sh it's going to be established. I mean, the, the decision is um, remitted to the workers' comp board for proceedings not inconsistent with the decision, which means that the, the accident arose out of and in the course of employment. Right, but um, then it would leave open the causal relationship aspect, potentially. Correct. Now, I know there's I, difficulties. Know, you mentioned yeah. there's a lot of difficulties in, in litigating that, considering that, he apparently had the the the, the uh, surgery to repair the tear after, but it does look like if the carrier wanted to, they could uh, decide to hey, we want to get an IME, we want to cross examine his doctor and go on the causal relationship. Now I don't want to get into right. unless they waived it, right? They could have. I know I don't know exactly know what happened I, as I far as the, the IME. I think was precluded at one point, and again, <sighs> it's, it's been a while, and I, I'll have to I can look in the record, but I, I believe there was um discussion of an IME, and again, from the carrier's point of view, this could have very well been a slam dunk for them, right? I, I mean, I think we were very surprised when we got the decision. Um, so is it worth the time to risk the IME? Is it worth the Well, cost? I mean, in this case, it looks like, um, again, I don't want to get into some specifics because it's ongoing. You know, I don't know how much you would want to actually divulge <laughs> yeah, or disclose, agree, yeah. but it looks like, just from the facts that the third department laid out here, that he suffered a pretty discreet injury, a specific injury, tearing the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rotator cuff tear. I don't know if he suffered a bicep tear. It's an injury to the biceps. And then he had a surgery that may or may, may have been successful. I mean, he had it only a few days after, so you think it was addressing a very specific problem. And so you'd be looking at, you know, pretty specific schedule loss of use. They would know exactly what kind of exposure they had, and especially if the surgery was successful, not much in the way of medical. But again, it's been a long time. So I don't know. I don't know what the carrier would want to do. I think part of me as a carrier attorney would be so annoyed at this decision uh, for reversing. But then I would be like, hey, the only thing they actually addressed was arising out of it in the course and scope of employment. So we still have that cause and relationship prong to do. And yeah, sure. Let's spend, let's spend a few thousand dollars on an IME and depositions and uh, try to uh, not give the claimant anything yet. Yeah, we're not pitching for the file, but uh, <laughs> if that was a pitch, that, that sounded like a great pitch to me, yeah. Noah. Um, I guess, Sarah, to, to, to then go to the end of the decision, right? And you would know this better than, than us, right? I always love these sentences at the end where it says, to the extent that the party's remaining contentions are properly before us, 
They have been considered and found to be without merit or are academic in light of our decision. So, you know, in layman's terms, hey, like you won, go celebrate, good job. Uh, we're not going to address your other arguments because uh, that's not relevant in the case or to the extent that you've now won won uh, the decision. Uh, any uh, color that you can put into those arguments, was there anything there that maybe you wanted to uh, talk about? Well, if you look at the beginning of the decision, um, there were two issues on appeal. And one was um, that uh, there was an issue with whether our client's due process rights were violated uh, upon um, the full board denying review. And the basis of that was the fact that um, these same three commissioners who determined the board panel, who uh, decided at the board panel that um, our clients did not have a viable case, also denied full board review. Um, this was the second time we brought this up to the appellate division, and the second time that the issue, um, that the appellate division uh, decided not to uh, address it. Um, and obviously, it was decided on the merits, and um, they, they didn't feel the need to address it. Um, the board's volume is enormous. Uh, this year, again, because I, I, I looked it up, as a few weeks ago, there were 7,800 decisions, I believe, for, from the board panel. Over, over 20 a day. <laughs> and that's using it 365 yeah. days. So that's crazy. Right. right. We, uh, but they're all generated by your office. Oh, okay. <laughs> there no, well, we have an outsized proportion of it, but thank you. We're flattered. <laughs> no, but in general, I I am teasing, but no, in general, I mean, it's what I've seen is that um, it's, some of these, some of the appeals, you and I both know, we all know that they're, you know, for administrative correction, because there's no other remedy, right? So let's say 10% of our administrative correction, that's still an enormous amount of decisions the board's putting out. Um, I don't know, I believe they must be cognizant of the issue. Um, we do have a, another brief pending that has been perfected on the issue. Um, and it's available to the public, you know, through the NICEF system, which is the um, the electronic filing system for the uh, court system. And, and it's certainly uh, publicly available, and the issue's up on appeal. And um, this time, it's the only issue up on appeal. There aren't any other issues. So it'll be interesting to see um, what action is taken. I, I don't know. Um, I've vetted it past a few people who I, I think are phenomenal appellate attorneys, and, and phenomenal litigators, and nobody knows how it's going to be decided. Um, is it simply administrative in nature, or, or is it something else? I don't know. But I, I would like it to be addressed. Um, you know, when we when I first started practicing, I believe there was only one commissioner signing off on the full board denial, uh, and that changed, um, you know, a number of years ago. So I don't know. With the volume we have, I don't know if there's a good, good explanation or good resolution. But um, this is the third time we've brought it up on appeal with the appeal pending right now. I think honestly, it, it'll be interesting. I think that's a really interesting issue. Just for just basic background for anybody listening, obviously you bring an appeal before the board panel. There's three members of the board that render a decision or sign off on a decision, and then when you bring it to the next level and ask for uh, discretionary full board review, there's another three that sign off. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in this case, the same three. The same three members signed off on the board panel decision affirming the law judge's decision. And then the same three, right, they were, they were the same three that signed off on the full board application saying, oh, we didn't, essentially, we didn't make any mistakes. 
of fact or law. Our decision is fine. Therefore, you're done. It's it does just it does rub you. It, it seems like, hey, it's more than the appearance of impropriety. It just doesn't make a lot of sense if you're going to allow that avenue for review to just have the same exact people um, dealing with it. And I, I'm also very interested in well, especially what because their department's going to say. Like, uh, rejecting a discretionary appeal can just be, it's just a rubber stamp. Yes. Right? Like, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be that hard to right. have a, three other members rubber stamp a, a, man, a, a unanimous board panel decision. But that's, yeah, that is very interesting. And you know, Sarah, you know I like uh, uh, disrupting. So uh, we'll, I'm, I'm very anxious for that for that one to come out. And actually related yeah. to that, I'm wondering, look, I'm not, I'm not saying it had any impact. But sometimes when you file an appeal, even just, just to the board panel, which is what we generally are doing, you know, sometimes to the third department, you put in a lot. Sometimes there's several arguments that you're making here. In this case, you had two. And sometimes the board panel, and in this case, maybe the third party, they don't want to deal with some of the issues. They kind of want to just kick the can down the road or they don't want to open that that can of worms. In this case, is it possible that the, the third department sees, hey, you know what? There's two arguments here. Maybe the first one's viable that it arose out of in the course of in scope of employment. And you know what? If we find that way, we don't have to deal with this really thorny issue of whether the, the workers' compensation board is acting uh, appropriately, or where we're actually going to have to tell the workers' compensation board, hey, by the way, you need to change your practices. So maybe, oh, hey, you know what? I don't want to deal with that. So let's right. just find... Let's just find that it's... it's yeah, I'm not saying that actually had an impact, but the fact that they found this way, they didn't have to deal with that, though you're saying that, you know, it's but something to happen now. If, if they affirm the disallowance, they would have to address the second Correct. issue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But which makes That's your point clear, Sarah, is like, you're... You're going to the third department on just that issue, and so it, it kind of has to be addressed. Yeah, and, and that was um, that was a decision uh, made not just by me. I can't take the credit for that. That was um, by people much smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, uh, people I respect greatly. Uh, but it, it, you know, the first time this came up, um, the AG's office didn't respond, and it was a very difficult brief. It was actually against another claimant's uh, attorney. And again, these are all publicly available decisions. They're all publicly available. The briefs are. The records are. Um, and, and so, um, and it was a discussion, you know, about well, we're going to bring it up. Are they going to address it? And we, we lost at the third department. So I, I think what's interesting is the fact that we did win this time and they didn't address it. Um, you know, it, it's, I'm not going to say I'm going to keep on fighting until I get an answer. We may not get an answer, and, and it's the nature of what we do. Uh, the other question is, you know, it's administrative law. So what rules apply and what don't? And I think I made a viable argument about what rules I believe apply, but that doesn't mean anybody has to agree with me. I mean, that's why we practice law and we have multiple attorneys in a case. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I know, think I, I think it's more of an interesting, like, academic question because ultimately, even if you prevail, what's the third department? What are they going to say? They just be like, okay, when you have a full board review, make sure that you you switch up the uh, the members. <laughs> but it's not going to be like some kind of crazy <laughs> crazy substantive change. So, like, let's say you're successful in your pending third department on that issue, they'll be like, all right, so we're going to send it to three different commissioners cool, to deny that. your uh, full board uh, a review application, something like that. But I'm just interested in what, what they say about the board's practices and what, if they're doing it pro properly. Well, there's also something we're all missing as practitioners that came to my attention uh, with the most recent appeal that I perfected. And I don't think that I ever realized this, and I don't know how I missed it. Yes, if there's an abuse of discretion or it's arbitrary and capricious, it can be, uh, you know, those are two of the standards for discretionary full board review to be granted. But did you know 
that if the board panel fails to address one of the issues or one of one of the uh, points in the board panel decision, there's case law on it that actually full board review should be granted. Because I think we see a lot of times that we make arguments that are brushed aside or not addressed at all in the board panel decision. And in fact, um, the case law actually states that um, that there is another reason that the full board can grant review, which is um, that the board panel failed to address all the issues before it. Again, with the volume, I, I don't know if... if yeah, um, it's interesting you say that because I am waiting now over two years on a full board decision because the board panel decided to not address uh, one of the issues. It has to do with the 153W credit that everybody mm -hmm. is still confused on. Maybe they don't have the uh, direction or they don't know what to do. It's been over two years now, and we're still waiting on it because the board panel, when they, they, uh, they kicked the can considered down. the appeal, straight up ignored that issue, didn't address two it years. at all. And so sometimes you do get amended board panel decisions like, oh, 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 yeah, by the way, this. But this doesn't seem like it's that instance. It's like, hey, you don't address something, please address it um, so that we can move on with our lives. But yeah. That's uh, something to uh, think about. Well, in practice, though, the other thing that I've seen is that um, I've had it happen twice where there's been an amended decision so the third department didn't take action. I've had it happen twice, and it was a number of years ago both times. And the AG's office was gracious enough to call me and say, hey, we made a mistake, or hey, this issue is resolved. And those were the two. Um, one was simply that somebody forgot the word not in case law. And it changed the whole meaning of everything. Uh, and that was about uh, about 11 years ago or so. And then the second one was that it was the issue was basically resolved uh, among the parties. And so they issued an amended decision. Um, you know, in this case, I mean, one of the things I also thought about was I've written a lot of appeals and I've had one board panel dissent once. And there actually was this, and then it went to a full board where the full board dissented. But the dissenting opinions aren't common. And, um, it's, I don't know if it's just an overloaded system um, or not a broken system per se. I mean, obviously, we're all here and we're getting stuff done. Our clients are being taken care of. But um, I, I don't know what the resolution is. And, uh, again, I think that's for people much smarter than I am to determine. But it's certainly 7,800 appeals or 7,300, whatever it was, by October um, speaks to the volume of what we're all doing. I mean, the number of hearings we have a week, we're all very blessed and we're, we're blessed to have jobs and it's extraordinary, but at what point does the, the process have to change so that it's a little bit more efficient and maybe more cognizant of um, of the, the issues before it? I mean, and we'll be honest, you know, sometimes there's some places and some people or firms that appeal everything. And so then, you know, is that also bogging down the system. I, I don't know if there's a good answer, but um, I, I'd like to find out. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think and, uh, I think the board's taking some steps to it, right? You know, I mean, the uh, you spoke about uh, the shoulder surgery uh, going outside of the, the PAR process, right? And I actually believe the PAR process, like, you know, whether we want to say that's good or bad, it does take away potential appeals when uh, decisions have to be made on treatment within, what, four calendar days at each level, um, I have to also imagine that, you know, I, the three of us know that there are particular law judges that, that don't like getting appealed, right? So they have to be cognizant of creating a good record, creating that substantial evidence that if they have to get appealed, then maybe they want to win out and, 
uh, you know, it's important to them, uh, just like it would be to any of us, I feel like, if we were on the bench. But I think that's probably a topic for another day. I think this is probably a good time to close and, and celebrate, Sarah, you know, your, your trot around the bases for your firm, uh, you know, a good win for, for, for you guys on the claimant side. Not a great result for us, but I think it's the analysis of this decision, like what happened before, the color you could provide, and really know like a, a lot of the things that you would have done or, or really would do even into the future with this case uh, was really interesting to me. So uh, I want to thank you both for coming on to the show, and uh, you know this will uh, be our, our obviously our November edition of the podcast. Uh, so for Noah Pollock and for Sarah Bea, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.